You're listening to the Business and Life Conversations podcast with Angela Henderson, episode 60. Hey there, you're listening to the Business and Life Conversations podcast. My name is Angela Henderson, and on this show, we talk about improving your business, life, or both by having amazing and rich conversations with brilliant guests who will inspire you and who will give you tips and tricks to help you grow both in life and in business. Well, hey there, and welcome back to another amazing episode of the Business and Life Conversations podcast. I am your host, Angela from Angela Henderson Consulting, where I am a business consultant working specifically with women in business to develop the foundational structure and strategy they need in order to grow sustainable and profitable businesses. Today, I'm thrilled to have on the episode James Remco, who is the owner of Superfast Business. James is not only my coach, but also a person I'm proud to have as a friend. He is one of a very, very rare breed. And what I mean by this is that his way of doing business makes my heart burst with rainbows and in James's case, surfboards as he loves to surf so much. He's knowledgeable, like really, really, really freaking knowledgeable. But even more than that, it's his kindness that drew me to him. He treats people like people, not like a number like so many other big business owners are currently doing. He's real. Now, I know what you're thinking. That word real, Ange, gets thrown around like a tossed salad. But I'm telling you, James is as real as he comes in his approach to helping businesses scale. I'm excited to have James on the podcast today because we're going to be talking about can you make 100K per month and what are the green flags you need to be looking for in order for this to happen. In this episode, James is going to walk us through the high-level diagnostic checklist, aka the gap analysis he uses with his own coaching clients to find out where the gaps are between them and the success that they are wanting for. But we're also going to chat about surfing, fatherhood, and so much more goodness. But before we jump into the episode today, I just want to let you know that this particular episode is sponsored by my new on-demand business masterclass, the ultimate four-step framework for creating a sustainable and profitable business. In my 60-minute jam-packed masterclass, you will learn my signature four-step framework for creating a sustainable and profitable business without sacrificing time with your kids, without the overwhelm, or without wasting any more cash. You're also going to learn in the 60-minute jam-packed webinar, the four big business mistakes that everyone in business makes and why they're keeping you from growing that sustainable and profitable business. And lastly, what is working for you in business now and why most of what you're being taught about growing a business is outdated and are wrong. I would love for you to sign up for my on-demand masterclass and you can do that by heading to bit.ly, bit.ly backslash masterclass with Angela Henderson. And yes, get ready to rock and roll with some amazing learning. But in the meantime, we will also have this link in the show notes. All right, let's jump in today's amazing episode with James. Welcome to the show, James. Great to be here, Angela. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I know you've been going for over a year now, so congratulations. Yes, on, it was. Uh, getting that out there. Yeah, no, super exciting. You know, a big push came from you about the podcast. So yes, yeah, so we've just hit the year mark a couple of weeks ago, which is always super fun, big learning curve. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it's a great asset for your business. It's a wonderful way to make connections with people. And again, yeah, just to, to have a voice and make an impact on the world. So no, so it's fantastic. What was the most surprising thing for you about having a podcast? Um, I think the most surprising thing for me is just how you can 
for example, like, you know, what we're going to talk about today, but you think you're helping people in one way, but actually the comments and uh, feedback that people get, you're actually helping people in many different ways. So uh, for me, you know, it's just like those subtle reminders that everyone's journey is they're in a different spot right now. And because of that, you know, you never know uh, yeah, what, what your story or what you think your agenda is with having a client on board that what clients actually take away from an episode can be different than what you thought they would take away. Yeah, that sort of reminds me of the chocolate-coated carrot and that customer often doesn't even know what they need. They might want the chocolate, but they really need the carrot and a part of the role of, of the coach or the you know business advisor is to help them get the right solution even if they don't know how to ask for it. Mm-hmm. And I totally, and I know I see that too, also with some of my coaching clients is that they think they need the strategy or they think they need X, Y, and Z, but really it comes down to is they actually already have the strategy, but when we unpack a lot of it, it worked. It's about that mindset stuff also, you know? So uh, yeah, I do. I like the chocolate and carrot analogy. That's a good one. Now, yeah, cool. now you're over in the Philippines at the moment. So thank you, Genevieve, for making time while you're over there and you're visiting your family and obviously introducing your new bundle of joy, beautiful baby Lucy to that family. How, how's it all going, Genevieve, uh, on Lucy's big first trip? Uh, it's great. She, she, was, um, she did a number three on the airplane, which oh, was no. fun. They have very small change tables in airplanes. I didn't realize how small <laughs> they are. I was never looking for them before. Yep. Uh, but that's serious business, you know. Luckily, <laughs> I anticipated such an event, and I uh, secured myself a uh, a little bit of um, a souvenir outfit. So she was like, she came off the plane all like Sydney, Australia koala kangaroo outfit yep. <laughs> that she got mid-flight. But it was good, and uh, adapting to the heat because it's quite warm here. Uh, it's approximately twice as hot as what we left in Sydney. And uh, she's she's with it. I think she's just happy to be hanging out with mum and dad wherever we are. You do totally. Babies are chill. But yeah, yeah, her first international flight. And how is yeah the family? Were they just so excited to meet her and just love her up? Oh, very much so. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a crowd here and uh, people coming to visit and lots of smiles. And it's been a long wait because we haven't been here for about ten months, which is actually the longest we've not been here in the last five or six years. So we would normally come back a lot more frequently. And of course, it's just hard to fly when you're pregnant. (laughs) Right, exactly right. A little bit of risk around that. And uh, then there's that sort of that first phase of a couple of rounds of vaccinations and just getting big enough and strong enough ready to fly. And how would you think, James, like obviously we'll talk a little bit about it in a minute about where you were in business and where you are now. But I mean, obviously life as a dad now must, I can only assume here, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it's probably very different to when you were in the midst of, you know, starting a business and everything. Like, so are you enjoying it more now? Are you having better experiences? Like what is your thoughts about dadhood now with where you're at in business? Really the first time around uh, with my oldest kid is what caused me to pursue a job in sales in the first place. I mean, it was such an entirely different scenario. It was, I was basically in a situation where I had to double my income to provide for family and I was young and I figured sales was the way to do that. And that launched me into my sales career at a fairly early age. And I did well with that, but I was under so much pressure. You know, that saying about you make 
diamonds from coal under pressure. Yes. I was under pressure. So the diamond came out. The reason I had the career I had and the skills I've got is because I got into parenthood early and it forced me out of my comfort zone. I had literally no choice but to go out and to provide for a family in Sydney, which is not easy because it's a fairly <laughs> yeah, gosh, no. right up there with New York, London and Paris in terms of cost of living. And we also get taxed quite heavily. So I just had to. And I really just put my head down and went for it for the, the next decade and uh, and a little bit extra and, and kept <laughs> going. And so by the time I quit my job, which was about 11 years ago, you know, my first kid was already like um, 12 mm-hmm. you know? and, and the second one was 10 and the third one was eight and the other one was six, you know. So I, I already was just working when those kids were at the young years of their life. This time around, though, I've been present every single day and I've now cut back to a, around a three-day work week. So I do the bulk of my activities on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and that gives me the ability to do lots of nappy changes and come <laughs> down to the park and, you know, I'm, I'm there. In fact, Lucy often sits in on coaching calls and team meetings and the occasional podcast, so she's always around nearby and uh, it's just been such a different experience to have that level of bonding. I kind of missed out on that uh, so it is completely transformational. And I can see, you know, on your Instagram feed or, you know, whenever you, there's a level of, not that you've not always been happy, James, but you can definitely see um, that maybe she sparked a, a, a different new joy for you, James. Well, I really think the first, um, the first time around, I was more or less in shock. <laughs> yeah, it is. You it know, is a bit like that. Yes. Because... I was young and uh, it was an onslaught. I had massive financial burden and I had very little time. I really was working seven days a week. I occasionally had a day off, but it wasn't really like a day off because the business was open seven days a week. Yes. If a customer came in on your day off and you weren't able to take a phone call or, or quickly change and go back in, you'd lose the sale and that could be anywhere from... $250 250 to $1,600 commission. And right. that, meant, that meant a big difference. You know, I was definitely in it for the money to, to put food on the table. It was yep. survival. So I really think I was just in survival mode. I was in a bit of shock and I didn't get to fully appreciate it. I'm not saying I've got any regrets at all. I don't want that to be misconstrued. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, oh, no, no, absolutely. Uh, but I, I do think um, there is... You know, to, to also put this in perspective, the internet was only just starting. <laughs> it was, yeah, very new. Like in 1995 or 1996, around about this era, I remember I had a computer at that time, a PC, and it would take forever for the, the browser to load. I can't remember what it was, like Mozilla or something. <laughs> like we're talking really early days because my cousin was in... Uh, entrepreneur in the IT space and he put me onto the World Wide Web and I was looking up car models and Loch Ness monsters and aliens and things. It was fascinating to get onto this <laughs> internet. You know, it would dial in like that. Yeah, that sound. But then I didn't have a computer for years. I didn't get another computer at home until 2005. So I kind of skipped seven or eight years of not having a computer. And now... Uh, I guess my point that I'm getting to is I couldn't really do the job that I do now back then. Right. So there were 
way less options. But back then, the script was more or less go to university, get a job, get paid well, have a mortgage, family, and always be hocked to the eyeballs and um, on finance and credit cards and things. And so I guess it wasn't until the change in the way you can do things for me uh, unlocked a lot of that and it completely flipped the script. Flipped it, yeah, for you. And I guess. We've talked a little bit, obviously, you've got a beautiful family. You've been doing this for a while now, but a lot of my listeners will be new to you, James. I mean, I talk about you often on my podcast, but again, they're just at a different stage in business. And I want to let them know a little bit more about you before we kind of dig deeply even more. And I know one of the first things I do with all my guests is I like to ask a little bit of a fun question. So we obviously know you travel, but one of the things that I have found about you since getting to know you is that your love of surfing has definitely also equally won your heart over the last few years. So my question question to you that I want to start off with that fun little fact is what is your all-time favorite surf spot in the world and why? It's a tough question. Uh, you know, there's, this could be the number one podcast question you've ever had, James. Okay. This is a tough one for you, I think. It's extra tough because in surf culture, you never reveal your favorite surf spot. <laughs> oh gosh. All right. So you're, like, this, like, is, this is like a double-edged sword one. here, James. It's the number one rule. Um, I won't reveal the surf spot, but I will say it's in the Philippines. Okay. And it, it's a reasonable drive um, to get to, a bit of a travel. But when you get there, it's not too crowded. It's got a really good setup, very similar to what we experienced in the Maldives. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but it's accessible by land, so it gives you quite a lot of options for accommodation and food. And I would say if you're an Australian listening to this, I would say it's like Noosa, would have been in the 70s so it's still undiscovered and it's still awesome and it's it's going to be epic in 20 or 30 years from now but if you want to go mainstream and publicly available knowledge i'd say i really enjoy the maldives and mm -hmm. the, the reason for that is it's so clear uh it's very friendly it's um manageable if you're not that good which i'm not and it's accessible, like we just dive off the boat. <laughs> and it's Literally. Yeah, and it's like I, I really like that because of the whole experience wrapped around it, the, the getting meals prepared for a week and, and just easy living. I like that so much. And now the thing, though, is, is, James, you haven't always surfed, and I know we're not talking a lot of business yet. We will get to that, but I think it's important that audience gets to know your personality also and who you are. You haven't always surfed. This is something that's just come about, do you know what I mean, in the last few years. What sparked you to get into surfing? I had a podcast with Ezra Firestone called thinkactget.com. It was really good. Ezra was a, and still is a student of mine from the early days of his online e-commerce um, through to where he's now, like mega super successful, decamillions millions of revenue. Uh, him and I thought it would be good to do a Hawaii retreat. So that was the first prototype of what is now the Maldives Mastermind. It was Ezra plus me and we had three students pay a few thousand dollars each to come and live with us in a house on the North Shore of Oahu. So Ezra and I attended, we did the workshop, we we helped these three people with their business. We ate meals. We did some supping and so forth. And then after it was finished, Ezra grabbed this foam board out of the garage in the hippie commune that he was living in. <laughs> yep. I, went, I, went I was staying in a spare room there as well. It's the first time I've ever lived in a hippie commune. <laughs> and he said, let's go for a surf. And he drove down to the North Shore 
to a beach pretty much next to Pipeline, and that's like a world-famous Very famous. Dangerous, <laughs> but epic waves on the planet. And he just took his shirt off and just ran out and paddled out. And I thought maybe that's the last I'll ever see of this. <laughs> and he and he, he was into it, but it was a little bit rough. And he came back in. He said, "Let's go around to Chun's Reef, and you can try with Kerry. That's his his wife. The secret ingredient of Ezra's um, destiny." Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we went out to Chun's Reef, and then he just instructed us. He said, "Okay, so." When you fall off, just fall flat like a pancake, like put your arms and legs out. Don't, don't reach for the bottom. And I said, well, why? And he goes, because there's a razor-sharp reef. <laughs> yes. and I'm like, okay, so this is where you're taking us to learn to surf. <laughs> and we all paddled out on this one foamy, like two of us in the water, one on the board, and then, and then we took turns to catch waves. And by catch, I mean the wave kind of picked us up and threw us a few feet until we fell off. But I remember standing up for just a microsecond and it was kind of exhilarating. And this is about seven years ago, just for context, six, six years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, when I got home from Sydney, one of Ezra's clients, Mark, a really nice guy, had a surfboard store online. And he came around to my place in Manly and he loaned me a nine foot two surfboard. And I chucked it into my elevator and it just fit like literally a centimeter to spare. Yep. And took it up to my 13th level apartment and I, basically every day I would just put it in the lift, go down to the beach and, and um, practice. I got beaten around. I think I broke my ribs. I got uh, seven stitches on my forehead I, I, because Manly's pretty busy. It's got a lot of backpackers and learners. So I, I got run over. I ran over people. I uh, had lots of ding repairs <laughs> in the end. Uh, it's a very tough learning curve. It's so hard because the playing field gets messed up overnight and you start from scratch again. It's always different. And I just stuck with it and, until it became uh, something I was determined to to get the hang of. So I'm, I'm getting there, but you never really master surfing. I, I would say I'm an intermediate at this point. But again, it's interesting though, that the parallelisms there between, you know, what we're going to talk about your, you know, how you started this. And again, you got beat it around, you had to test things. The playing field was always moving. It's similar to business, I guess, right? Is that you never know. Just when perfect metaphor, it it needed to come along for me because um, firstly, I couldn't do that when I was working seven days a week. When I was working seven days a week, I would look at a tradesman driving along in a utility with a motorbike on the back, like a mm-hmm. dirt bike with mud all over it. And I'd think, how come a plumber can go on dirt bike and I'm driving around in my fancy suit and car? I just like, what am I doing wrong? How have I got <laughs> yes. life up so badly? And then um, and I couldn't do it before. So that's one thing is creating the time. And like you said, it is a love of mine. It, it's firmly in my life. It's something I do every day and I build my business around facilitating that. Secondly, uh, it's such a metaphor. Everything is difficult before it's easy and it was going to be no different. And I applied my business mind, my approach to, to the surf process and I was able to get improvements and uh, it was funny in the local surf store which unfortunately had to close down because he wasn't uh, very business uh, aggressive I guess or assertive yes he was just sort of drifting along in business 
but he's a really nice guy and had fantastic boards. But when he closed the store, I went and helped him out to clear the, the showroom. Mm-hmm. And I was like putting on my old sales mode and I went <laughs> into the, the surf shop and everyone that walked in the door, I just helped them find the right board and they bought it and they left. And we cleared the whole place. And this guy uh, who owned the store, he just looked at me and says, I cannot believe you didn't even know how to surf a few years ago. Like it's unbelievable. I know everything about it. doesn't mean I'm good at it. But I do know a lot about it and I even keep spreadsheets to track the different boards and dimensions and, and waves ridden and top performance. And now I've started making my own versions with the help of a very talented local shaper and we CAD model it on the software and we get it laser cut and then it's handmade with really modern materials like Kevlar and carbon and uh, another one I can't even pronounce. And, then, and <laughs> you know, it's such an... You know, you know how you like your sparkles and stickers and and the glitter, uh, mask, yeah. you know, all that stuff. That for me, that's design. That's a surfboard. surfboard. That's my creative side. So that's again another metaphor. It's, it's how I've unlocked the creative version of me because I would never have put myself in the in the creative box. Yep, I'm earlier. Put glitter on my name tag. <laughs> and, and I'm well, the first person to spray paint a surfboard. Yeah. But again, maybe that's, you know, you need a surfboard with some glitter. I'm just saying, not, you, you probably will never get me on a surfboard, but I'm I saying it could be fun. Only because it, it's um, too similar to a fish and I think it's asking for trouble. Oh gosh, actually, I never thought about that. That's why I leave that's the surfing. That's why you, you. you don't wear jewelry <laughs> when you're surfing. So that's why when, when we're in the Maldives in a few weeks, do you know what I mean? I will not bring any glitter then when we're going just, out just to the water. Just avoid glitter and the, you know, and the, if you want to look like a fish uh, and you... <laughs> Don't don't do it near any of the surfers. Okay, cool. Gotcha. Speaking of the Maldives, you and I, uh, it was funny because I was just speaking with Stevie Dillon on her podcast earlier this morning and we were talking about how she had met me a couple of years ago. And that's actually the same place you and I met. It's actually less than two years we've known each other, but it feels much longer, James, because I've had the opportunity to get to know you at different events. I also am in your membership group and we also hung out at the Maldives last year at your mastermind. We're all about to go back to the Maldives again for your mastermind. And I guess one of my questions that I want to ask you is in a world where there's a lot of disconnect, a lot of things are getting over automated and you know, you and I both are very into H to H marketing. How important do you think it is in this time of need for businesses to do things like masterminds and goes to, and go to events in order to help them grow that sustainable and profitable business? Well, it's, you know, like I wouldn't be surfing if I didn't go to Hawaii yep. and do that event with us. So I, I can really pin almost every fundamental pivot point in my business or growth curve or leverage. Um, even what I do now, like with Silver Circle in particular, a huge amount of value I bring to my clients is my connections. And mm-hmm. I've formed by traveling and I, I will go to the events I'm not saying be an event junkie. I've seen those people and frankly, they sadden me a bit. The people who just constantly go to events as attendees with this because they're lonely and because they want to hang out with other people, but they're not really getting the, the gist of the true value of it. And the sometimes, investment really. Well, sometimes there's uh, great content and that's terrific. And the, the people investment is, you know, that's the intangible. It's much harder to put a value on. But if you were to do someone's profit and loss uh, account uh, or look at their balance sheet, you don't really see the intangibles like relationship value, but relationship capital, I think that's what Jay Abraham calls it, is a tremendously powerful 
asset. And that's what I've been building up is building up my relationship, uh, my, my you know, relationships that I can build to the point where I've become part owner in several people's businesses where we've built such a strong relationship that we've gone to that sort of stage where we're working together in, in a portfolio. And that, that comes back to the live in-person thing. There's no replacement. And, you know, the person I was speaking to this morning who comes from a direct response background, he said right now, for example, in business to business, direct response mail or, you know, using post and sending things is just fertile ground. It's basically ignored. Everyone's trying to do everything online. If you want to utilize offline in your marketing, and I know you do this spectacularly well, things you send out. Thank you for the lovely little baby. <laughs> oh, well. yes, uh, the milestones uh, are definitely being well documented. Um, that That is where you step it up. You, you'll go deeper and further into relationships if you can meet people face-to-face. And the same goes for your team, and that's often ignored. Tomorrow I'm going to be hanging out with my team here in the Philippines, and this is why I've been coming back here so many times. I don't know, maybe 20 times. Um, mm-hmm. I've built up the relationship I have with my team, which is coming up to 10 years, is pretty world-class. I'll put my team against anyone's team that we have such a strong relationship and, and it's because of that care and respect and and understanding that you develop face-to-face. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't agree. Like, again, that's what I spoke about at your event, that face-to-face, that human, is, human stuff is going to be what is the differential, I think, in businesses sticking around for a lot longer in the upcoming years and those businesses that will start to just get lost in the world of the internet, really. I think the old will become new. And we're seeing it with food. Like people now want organic food that's not modified with steroids and pesticides and all this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, food services are back in. You could actually have stuff delivered to your door. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can app and have stuff come to your door. That You know, in the old days, they used to drop milk and bread to your front door. And then there was this phase where you had to go out to the shops to get it. Personal service is not going out of fashion. It needs to be rare and and special. And like you said, with the mail, you do a lot of great uh, snail mail stuff too. Also, I know like when I was flying to the Maldives to the event, we had a well, I had about like a five hour layover in Singapore. I just closed cart on my uh, coaching program. You know, I picked up. I had Skype. I just used Skype credit. I called all of my people. I mean, there was ten. Granted, it wasn't a lot. Like, it wasn't hundreds of people. I called every one of those people. The granted majority, eight of those people didn't pick up their phone. Uh, I did leave a message, but the two people that picked up their phone is kind of like like. Oh my gosh, Angela. One was like, I thought you're on the way to the Maldives. What are you doing calling me? And the other one was like, Angela, Angela who? And I like almost had to try to convince her that it was actually me calling her because people don't pick up the phone anymore to chat with people. People rarely send things in the mail anymore. And I do think, again, I like that saying, I think the old is going to become the new again. <laughs> when people call super fast business and, and they go, hello, is this super fast business? And I say, yes. And they say, is it James? Yes. <laughs> no way. Anyway, uh, I also send a personal video to everyone uh, in my membership when they, especially when they're joining, and uh, and occasionally for other reasons. But it's a nice thing to do, and it's not that hard, and it separates you out from people who aren't prepared to do it. Now, for those people, James, like I know you, there's a lot of people, actually, you're known really well around Australia internationally. You've appeared on a hundred of podcasts. You are on stages everywhere, but not all of my listeners are going to know who James Remco is. So 
I would love for you just briefly, I know you talked a little bit about how when you had your first child, you had to get into sales, do you know what I mean, at the car dealership. But I would love for you just to share a little bit, do you know what I mean, about your journey, about where you've been and where you are so that the listeners have a little bit more of an understanding about who James Shremko is. Sure. From a business perspective. Again, we know you love surfing. <laughs> you love traveling. You've got a beautiful baby girl named Lucy and four other kids and an amazing uh, wife, Trace. But tell us a little bit about the business side, I should say. Uh, well, business-wise, I guess I had some ventures when I was a bit younger. I, I didn't quite uh, have success with academia. So I got glandular fever the first time I tried to do my accounting course and then I took the, the rest of the year off. And um, I had a lawn mowing round. I worked in a timber yard. I, I did all sorts of odd jobs, labouring jobs. And I also worked in an accountant's office on Fridays, mostly so I could mess up their filing system. But... <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I had an eclectic range of business things. You know, I did a couple of years of study as an accounting course only because my parents thought that would be a good foundational course, uh, which it was. And then I went into debt collection. So my first full-time job was in the city uh, as, as a debt collector doing telephone debt collection to call people up. It's pretty much like sales but a bit harder because they already have the goods or the services and they use them. <laughs> like, hey, you serviced your car and the dealer wants to get paid or, uh, you know, you, you need to, to pay up for the hairdressing salon appointment you made or whatever. So that was, that was pretty interesting. And after a few months there, I switched to the same role but in a bigger company, General Motors, GMAC Finance, and I did debt collection for another nine months. So my first year was telephone debt collection. And then I went into the field. I actually went and did repossessions. So I repossessed cars and I went to car dealerships and checked their finance plans, made sure they had all the cars that we were, that we were actually financing. And so repossessions and, and floor plan audits, lots of driving around for that, up to 500 kilometres a day. Mm. And then uh, after that, I came back into the office and did like credit credit card, uh, credit contract renewals and stuff. And that was a little bit bland and boring. Then I went into the exciting field of technology. And as an administrator, so I was like a, a regional administrator, I was doing stock control, financial type things, seconded to a sales unit for a company that was new to Australia at the time called Vodafone. And I uh, was really intrigued with these salespeople. They were fascinating people. They, they did not that much work. They got paid ridiculously well compared to me. And when they weren't there, I ended up making most of the sales anyway, but I was on a flat wage. And it was from that role where I transitioned into my sales role. And I started with BMW and I needed, I just needed to make the money as we talked about before. And within 12 months, I was the number one BMW salesperson in Australia. And I kept that rolling for, for the next year. And then I switched to Mercedes-Benz because I realized I could have Sundays off and I could increase my income if I switched. And uh, so I went in there and within a year of working at Mercedes-Benz, I was the number one salesperson in Australia. And I got promoted to sales manager and my sales team were now winning the competitions. I had like three of the top five people. That's cool. And then, uh, then I got headhunted by Mercedes-Benz to go out and fix up a dealership that they were struggling with a bit and they wanted me to take it on. It was a big challenge. So I went in as a general sales manager and I spent four years rebuilding that. I started with this 
like demoralized, weak sales team of six people who were punching out like 27 cars a month. Yep. And within a few years, we got it up to the point where we exceeded 100 cars a month. We'd gone from last to first for customer satisfaction. And That's awesome. A bunch of my sales, we had 21 salespeople and a bunch of them were the leaders in the country. And it was just a massive turnaround. And then, then the last role was they approached me to, in fact, a little bit of a, a little bit of a side story there. The two owners of that business had a massive falling out and a, and a legal battle, and I got sort of stuck in the middle of that. And one of the owners was particularly nasty and, and rude at the time, and it became clear to me I really needed to move somewhere else. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually got uh, picked up by. BMW down the road and I phoned up Mercedes head office and said, I'm, I'm just terribly sorry, but it's become untenable where I am and I'm going to have to go back to BMW. I don't want to. I really like the brand. And they said, don't go. We will find you a job. Like we'll pay you a wage to just turn up to head office in, until we find you something. Don't leave the brand. And then they found another dealership and they said, you must hire this guy. And they took me on as a general manager and that was my last job for about four years. And I, same thing, it was losing money when I started and we did a big turnaround. And years later after I left, I left 11 years ago, um, they actually sold that business to a, a bigger group and did quite well out of the sales. So it was, it was a good turnaround. And that was at the same time I was doing that last job is when I started learning my online marketing and building my own websites and learning about affiliate marketing and making information products and then started providing services. And it took about two and a half years until I could get out of that job because I had to match my income. And my wage was pretty good at the time. I was earning around 300 grand a year. And it took me two and a half years to get my online business up to that point. And then from there, I never looked back. I've, I've, I've never had less than six figures a month for the 10 years straight. Which is, hello, fantastic. It's great. I'm, I'm like, I'm loving it and, and I enjoy it, but it's kind of everything I had to go through and it was really, really tough. I can tell you it was a really difficult industry. It's a competitive industry. It's been around for over a hundred years. It's a harsh, tough, commoditized industry. So I got good skills in that tough environment. And when I came online, it's like, wow, there's, there's so many people online who haven't got a clue what they're doing. And that makes a great place for me to be a coach because I can really help people fill in the gaps. And that's where now, again, obviously you've had like you did the SEO, you did that, but that's now really where you've positioned yourself is with super fast business. And you've really got those two kind of uh, programs, correct me if I'm wrong here, James, you've got your one, which is any, most businesses between the 100,000 K to 500,000 K is, you know, your membership. And then you've got your silver circle for those that are making 500 K or more. And then obviously you've got your complimentary, the Mel Dives mastermind and your live events that you do now pretty much every year. Is that, am I pretty accurate on that? Pretty accurate. Uh, I would say that um, for super fast business, it's ideal for someone making between $10,000 to $500,000 a year. Okay. Yep. Um, and silver circle, basically I exclude startups. I, I don't love working with startups. If you don't have something that's already selling, that just, it's just too much difficulty for not enough reward. For it's mm -hmm. not rewarding for either of us. <laughs> yep. um, so that's a good example of setting a filter of who you shouldn't work with. I don't do startups mm -hmm. uh, and I don't purport to be an expert in venture capital and all that. I'm not looking for $500 million businesses either. My sweet spot 
ideally, my sweet spot customer is making a hundred or two hundred grand a year, and they'd really like to make a million dollars a year or two million. Silver Circle members, the average member there makes three million dollars a year. That's the average, um, but that's slowly phasing out into my own portfolio of um, of partnerships. So some of those members now are partners. So there's two ways they can play with that. They either pay a coaching fee or they give me a percentage of their business revenue and I help them and that's a long-term partnership. So it's kind of like an investment portfolio. Outside of that, there's still a couple of other streams uh, which we don't need to get into too much but I have a couple of portfolio items outside of there that uh, kind of assets that I build up for the long haul. Yep. And so it's through this though, and this, I guess that we've got here, but again, I, I think it's really important for people to get to know you, James, for who you are and what you stand for and what you like. But what we're going to talk about today though, is can you make a hundred K per month and what the green flags are to look at? And I guess that's where we're going to get into the nitty gritty of the learning here today is that through all the people that you've helped over the years of coaching uh, with Superfast Business and you know your Silver Circle members is from what I understand is that you started to see some common threads along the way, some trends along the way, you could also say. And because of that, you've created this really thorough diagnostic checklist or diagnostic assessment, depending on what you want to call it, that you kind of can look at the business now or have businesses look at their own business to kind of go, these are the green flags. Yep, you're on the right track. Or hey, actually, these are the red flags. So are you able to, I guess, can you start to share with us a little bit about what this diagnostic checklist, you know, where did it come from? Is that, you know, stem from what you've been learning? And two, what are kind of, can you walk us through what that checklist is? So part of the genesis of that was when I became a sales manager, I took on a, I had a, they'd just hired a sales cadet Mm -hmm. who was clueless, like he knew nothing. And I'm not sure how or why they hired him. But he just he he was like a blank canvas, <laughs> and I said, "Okay, buddy, uh, we really need to get a handle on what you know and what you don't know." So I had to sort of investigate. I'd already learned a sales methodology called spin selling. Spin selling, it actually sounds really hypey, but it's not at all. It's it's a solution sales technique for higher ticket items, and the S stands for situation, and that the whole emphasis is on investigating the current scenario. You can't fix something unless you know what you're working with. If you want to get to Brisbane, you need to know where you're starting from because the the journey will be different if you're in Perth or if you're in Sydney, right? Yes. So you need to know the starting bit. Even the the classic sales um, thing of bridge building, you know, you're on this bank here, you want to get to that bank bank. that you need to build. You've got to know which bank you're on. So it was just common sense for him to investigate and diagnose exactly what I'm dealing with and then I could create a solution for him and and that solution was actually forming like the ultimate checklist of what someone would need to know to be a a number one salesperson. I knew what it was inherently because I was but I also needed to distill that into a system so I created a a two-part system. One was theoretical and the second part was practical and I would say there's almost zero dealerships in Australia who are doing much in the way of practical training. There might be probably almost zero for theory as well. <laughs> I don't think they're trained very well. It's not hard to find a bad salesperson. Uh, but I did the theory checklist and the practical checklist. So in order to get him to a successful point, I knew he needed to not just know the stuff, but he needed to be able to do the stuff. So that was the formation of that first checklist. 
there were other things I was reading materials about selling, but I, I tend to take notes and I used to strain and distill ideas down and, and find what the, the patterns were and the key points. I used a script for my telephone sales. Even now, I have a script for telephone sales that has bullet points that, that are must must visit sort of checkpoints because I know that using roadmaps and frameworks and pathways gets you a repeatable success. It's like a chef following a recipe. If you can follow the recipe and use exact measurements, you should be able to replicate the results over and over again. Now, if you, if you wanted to create successful bread, you'd want to know what's, what's in the kitchen because if, if, if we're missing the ingredients, then we need to go to, and order them or get them from the supermarket. So that's where the diagnostic comes into it. It's like, what do we, what do we got here? So it's like putting x-ray vision on a business. And for you, like obviously there's sometimes, again, when I have my own coaching clients, they don't see the benefits right off the bat, right? But for you as a coach to, to create this diagnostic assessment to help obviously not only you, but for the, for the person that you're going to be helping, what do you think the core benefits are? Do you mean when you start to dive deep with this diagnostic checklist? Well, the benefit, the benefit for me is that I know I'm not going to miss a huge opportunity because it's covered and I can not stress or sweat or worry too much about leaning on my memory cells for it. And to that effect, I'm actually really good out of my memory. I can blitz it in those mastermind days. I love those things because it is in my head. Like it's deeply there. I've done so many calls and spent so many hours on this. I know my material. It's still nice to have the checklist. The benefit for the customer is they start to get an awareness. A, a big step towards making a change is you need to become aware of your situation. And like a lot of, like the average person walking around society, they are literally in a trance, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're glued to their little phone, they're doing their social media, they watch Netflix at night, they go to their job uh, and they eat whatever, you know, inverted commas, food. <laughs> uh, they're just drifting along through life. They haven't given it much conscious thought. They're not aware of it. If someone said, hey, you know that uh, packet that you just cram in your mouth, if you look at the list of ingredients, you know like four of those things are really toxic and cause inflammation and that's why you get a sore back and all that sort of stuff. And they're like, oh, really? You know, only when they become aware of it can they modify their behavior and make changes. So one of the last questions I ask is um, having gone through this diagnostic, what have you learned? And that the, the answer to that that I get, I usually cut and paste that answer back to the top of the thing because that usually defines the thing. Usually they say something like, I've realized how I thought I knew what I was doing, but I've got so many areas that I can improve and I'm very excited about what can happen now that I'm aware of this. Uh, that's, that's a positive way to look at it. One of them is like, it explains why I'm having so many challenges and I'm really glad I'm in the right place to get it sorted. So that's, again, it's a nice way to sort of frame that. That There is always an epiphany. It would be extremely rare that I get someone say, uh, you know, I knew all of this. I, I actually haven't had it yet. I haven't had anyone go through the diagnostic and say nothing new here. There's always something, some revelation because we're literally turning over all the stones. And but also, though, I think that's probably a good sign, though, James, because then people are ready and willing to learn, too. If you had someone going, oh, I've learned everything, there's nothing on here that's going to help me, 
they probably aren't going to maybe even potentially be your ideal client because they're not going to be learnable. They're not going to be teachable. Most people always have something that we can learn. You've got no business making a sale if someone can't improve their situation. Exactly right. You know, the the training technique or the teaching label for this is a gap analysis. Mm -hmm. The purpose of this is literally to throw a spotlight onto the situation and to analyze the gap so that you can now build the solution. I also kind of learned this in the car dealership. When you have a car that comes in that has a particular trouble, it's not always an easy or obvious solution. You don't, it's not always, oh, okay, well, it's this. Sometimes they have to do a diagnostic to figure out the, the complaint. The, the, the customer says, oh, it rattles, you know, there's a squeak when I go around right-hand corners at 20 kilometers an hour the technician has to start eliminating possibilities. Like they might remove the door trim or they might um, they might lubricate the rubbers on the door and see if that eliminates the squeak. If it's still not eliminated, then they have to go and, ch- you know, they might change the suspension on the, the back left corner. They might have someone ride around in the car with them, you know, with a stethoscope listening mm-hmm. for the squeak. Like it's a process of elimination. So in order to eliminate or to make changes, we just need to know what we're working with. So that's how the diagnostic came about. And with the diagnostic assessment uh, or the gap analysis, are you using this before a client comes on board with you? So almost like a pre-qualifier or are you doing this more like, okay, they're signed and now you're going to get into the nitty gritty? Uh, Well, generally it's after they're a client. So in Silver Circle, for example, they would see that they might be a good fit. We would have a conversation. I'll check the things I check for to make sure that I believe I can really add value. And should we go ahead, they pay, and then we go through the diagnostic. Yeah, because again, it I've is done a this pretty... a few different ways. I used to do it over the phone, but now I send it to them in written form and they send the answer back. And I have my own process now for how I deal with the answers there is there's definitely a proprietary way that i have that i deal with the answers it's not quite as simple as it looks because it's one thing to to get the synopsis of the scenario but the next part and i believe the true value of what i bring to table is how i organize the responses and then knowing what to do once you know the answers that's a big part Um, and to answer your question in the second way if people go to superfastbusiness.com episode 627, they can get a pretty decent business gap analysis diagnostic and go through it themselves. And I created also a training inside Superfast Business, which runs for over an hour, stepping through the system and then giving some answers as to how to deal with the answers and, and what which ones are more important than others. And so there can be some pre-work done before becoming a customer. Like you could literally get a result for free starting with that episode. Yeah. And with that though, I guess, can you walk us through some of the, I mean, I don't expect you to do an entire gap analysis, but can you give us a few examples? Cause I know you had a similar podcast episode you're talking about. Can you walk the listeners out there that they're like, okay, this is great. I probably have some gaps in my business. James, what, what are some of these key questions that you ask in your diagnostic checklist, you know, um, and why are these in questions, you know, important to know uh, for the green flags? Because some people don't know what they don't know. So they don't even know potentially what green flag they should or red flag they should be not having in their business. So can you walk us through some of those key questions that you ask in that diagnostic checklist? Sure. And they're kind of broken into categories to make it a bit easier, like a filing cabinet. And 
also, I agree with you. Like everyone has stuff they don't know. There's a tool called the Johari window, which I recommend you look up. And it's got the four quadrants of awareness. There's stuff that Angela and James knows. There's stuff that Angela knows that James doesn't know. There's stuff that James knows that Angela doesn't know. That's where the real value in our coaching is. Mm-hmm. The stuff that I know that you don't know. Yep. Stuff neither of us know. Like, you know, do aliens exist, for example? <laughs> yeah. Is there a God? These things are unknown. So there is always unknown stuff. But the, the true value for a coach is the stuff that they know that their client doesn't know. And the gap analysis will give them um, that. That is the tool to reveal to the, the person what they don't know. And uh, then the coach can step in and be the hero there, <laughs> solve it. So sort of things I'm looking for. I'm definitely looking for uh, the personal side of things because I believe it's strongly linked to business success. Uh, everything from fitness to fun, uh, is a, it's a common one where I see people fall short. If you're not having fun anymore or you're eating poorly or you're not healthy, your business will suffer at some point or it's not even worth it. I've seen people grind themselves to the bone. So, wow, they're an eight-figure-a-year marketer on revenue, but their their relationships have died, their body's giving up, and life's just not going to be that useful for them in 10 years from now. They're going to be just a burnt-out shell, like a wreck. Um, I also ask people to score their effective hourly rate. So we have a look at, um, you know, what is their... What are the tasks that they are doing actually worth to them per hour? Because that's a really good tool for us to use to make decisions in the future. Then we move into like a, a business structure category, like things like ownership of the business and the business setup and trademarks and um, whether they're buying or selling because these things impact the type of changes you want to make. It's much harder to sell a business called Angela Henderson consulting uh, but it is easy to sell uh, a business like um, Apple, right? Yep, so right. You, you're going to make different decisions depending on your, your your model. And I'm not saying one's right or wrong. There's a huge argument for, for having a personal brand these days especially. Um, I look at work environment. I've often found people uh, set up in an environment that just makes no sense for their business model and they can change it. Like some people are trying to work from home but they really need to be in an office and other people have an office and there's no need. Yes. Uh, we look at team especially. The, the people side of it is critical. I can tell you straight out of the gate, if, if you have no team, it's most unlikely you're going to pull 100 grand a month. Typically you're going to need five or six people in your sphere for that sort of volume, depending on your business model, of course. Uh, we look at products, servicing, and pricing. This is a massive one. Like, are you recurring? Are you one-times? Do you um, bundle things? Which things sell the most? Which things sell the least? Like, there's quick wins available here. Um, it turns out some people spend a lot of time and energy on products that are not going to fly. Or not yeah, going. again, a mutual friend of ours, Dan Norris, talks about, you know, get a product or test it, you know, test it, fail fast and move on. Right. But there's still so many people that will think that their product is the best product and they're putting tens and thousands of dollars in ads, websites, SEO, et cetera. But their product absolutely sucks ass really. Do you know what I mean? Like it sucks, but you know, I really like Dan and I can't remember what book it was that he talks about. Not his latest one, the one before that, but it was basically like fail fast, move on. But again, it comes down. If you don't have a good product, everything else is a ripple effect. 
Well, I think the, the essence of his most recent book is that he doesn't have a clue, um, is what he's saying. Don't listen to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. well, and, I mean, Dan is very honest about, do you know what I mean, everything. And I think yeah, he also, I mean, he does talk about coaches. He'd be and... the worst, worst business coach to have, for sure. <laughs> Gosh, did it. But, but again, but I do. Half of what he says is uh, utter rubbish and half of it's brilliant. It's just a matter of knowing which half. Yes. <laughs> and I love Dan Norris as well, but like he's found a couple of winners and he's tried a lot of failures. Um, I have a very strong success rate with the business models I've chosen. Yes. Coming at it from different backgrounds. I mean, it's, it's a classic example of having experience and a big data set to choose from. I've got a winning edge because I've got thousands of use cases to draw from. So I have at least an idea what's more likely to succeed or not. But, yeah, sunk cost absolutely gets people hard uh, where they, they, because they've put time and energy and money into something, they have to see it through when it's really, if you're walking further away from the watering hole in the desert, that's not going to get you a drink any quicker. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's just, yeah, some of those people will just keep pushing a rock up and it's unfortunately the product, you know what I mean, isn't very good. Uh, so yes. All right, cool. So product, pricing, packaging, all of that. We look at the sales messaging, um, what what's actually bringing the leads in, what so people buy from, if there's guarantees or risk reversal and kind of demonstration proof. Uh, like that's often missing. From people's, like there's not a single person on the homepage or the sales page or the shopping cart page saying that the product actually works. That would be a good thing online to build trust. Um, I definitely look at systems because people can get way out of control with this, uh, with what systems they're using, if they have any systems, um, if they've got the tools that the tool sets they're using, if they're looking at financial reporting, um, how they handle processes, um, what they're doing for for publishing their content and stuff. Systems can be incredible with this stuff. And I have obviously a strong background in systems, having built big teams. The people side of it, there's a lot of people there. Uh, there's the competitor people, there's the um, your own people and then your own values as well. It's like especially with, with team, that really is the, the major break as you grow your business team is what it's, what's going to be required. And, and again, that's one where pe- people typically are weak at because they haven't had experience leading people. And then I look at cash flow, like are they getting money in advance or arrears and part payments? What sort of failure rate do they have um, with payments? Are they having to do refunds? How much do they pay their merchants? How do they collect money? What currency is it in? And do they do double transfers? So here's a classic one for Australian marketers. They use an Australian credit card to buy American tools and then they collect money in American currency and then convert it back to Australian to pay their credit card. So they're paying two shitty foreign transaction fees. Uh, yes. On that. You know, so like $1 could actually cost them almost $2 if they've got it set up wrong. An easier way would be to collect money in US dollars and then pay it out in US dollars and have zero transaction fee. So that's just a quick win. For the average business who's doing a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year, there's tens of thousands to be saved in just putting the money in the right account. Um, then there's other, other stuff around um, the products and their marketing and what channels they're using and 
um, surveys and segmenting and how tuned their audience is and that's pretty much it. The pretty much, I mean, I think, again, that's a pretty good overview about the green flags that, you know, you're looking for. For those listeners, though, that James are out there like, okay, great, James, this is great. I've got a lot to take that I've got, to, you know, I've got crap load that I need to do. What would be, if you said about that entire checklist, James, what is the one thing or even the top three green flags that businesses really should start working on and focusing on first? Uh, well, I'd say definitely your offer. I just have a look at what are you actually selling mm-hmm. and if that makes sense. It's, it's pretty typical people undercharge and they they do things, crazy stuff, you know, like sell by the hour or sell one time. These things, are, it's going to be really hard for you to make a good living off that. So have a look at how could you make, how could you make your prices higher and offer more value? How could you go recurring instead of one time and, uh, you might find that you actually start to have money coming into the business. Uh, right. And how could you hire someone else to do the work instead of you so you're not selling your time by the hour? Mm-hmm. You can still sell hourly rates but not your hours. Um, so that really le- lends itself to team. Team is another huge part. I'd say if you are so busy and if you're overloaded off a one-hour podcast and, you know, you, you've got so many things on your plate you can't move, you definitely sounds like you're doing too many of the wrong tasks. So I'd list every task you're doing and I'd start deleting them or giving them someone else to do. That That's a quick win. And uh, if you can build out your team, it gives you power. Like the reason I can work three days a week is because I've got a team of six people helping yes. me. They do all the stuff that I'm not wanting to do or shouldn't do or even can't do in some place. I think that's an advantage. If you can't do something, uh, then it's not going to happen. And, and again, like that allows you to be able to focus on your zone of genius, which if you can focus on your zone of genius, you can help more people. Then again, this is only going to help with the bank account. Right. As long as you, your zone of genius pays well. You know, yes. If your zone of genius is sparkles on, on uh, paper, right. That's it's good for a kid and it's a nice hobby. You just have to make sure that in some way that's, that's something super valuable because I, you know, that's an easy job to get someone else to do. In fact, yes. I did the sparkles on, on your speaker card. I, <laughs> I know it I was did. very lovely. Right, I think like it was my first attempt. But <laughs> I dare say, if if we sampled the whole audience of 150 people, like 142 of them would do a better job than me. <laughs> but it was. It's something I would I would outsource. only do because it brings high emotional value the fact that i did it personally and it was and again i also look at it it was preparing you for what's to come with loose do you know what i mean you're gonna to have to get the sparkles and glitter out so again long-term well, solution there, don't Jack. worry we've still got sparkles all over the place. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna be very cautious next time oh, yeah well yeah well and i send you gifts you you never know what confetti will be in there james so no, listen, i know with you, you talked about the theoretical and the practical, James, about this checklist. And I just want to know where do you feel um, or where are you looking at when you're looking at this gap analysis around business owners' mindset? Because I do believe mindset is also a very powerful tool about how whether or not people will be successful or not successful. So where does that come in in the checklist? I mean, even doing the checklist, the fact that someone's interested enough to do it is a good indicator yep. to them mental faculty, um, how they process it, you know, and if they're honest with their responses and if they seek um, 
taking the practical side, then that's a, they're good indicators. Like that was one of the beauties of my sales training system because I didn't structure it out with time slots and over-organise it. I would sit the new sales candidate in front of me and say, here's your checklist. When you've put a tick in every box, you'll be able to sell. And when you sell, you'll be able to earn commission. Mm-hmm. How fast you do that is up to you. So one of the things on the checklist would be to go and interview the service manager and find out how service works here. Now, I would not set up an appointment for them. I would not tell them the name of the service manager. Yep. So what does this salesperson have to do? They've got to go and find out who's the sales manager and then they have to find the sales manager and make an appointment. And you know what you have to do in the role of selling? You have to actually investigate. You've got to look stuff up. You have to make appointments. The customer is not going to walk in and just hand you the money. You have to work for it. And so I'm during the training process, they actually got to work and they got the benefit of the results. So just by working through the diagnostic, there's a bit of homework. And by actually implementing the steps is where you get the payoff. So I think uh, mindset-wise, it is a little bit self-selecting there. But it really takes up the first chunk of my uh, diagnostic. I want to know why they're even in the business. And mm-hmm. I've often spoken to someone and like they hate their business. They started it for one reason in particular and now they're not happy with it. And we just have to do a complete reset. In fact, the very first call I had today was with a well-known super guru uh, who shall remain nameless, but he basically doesn't like the business he's in and how it's all turned out and we need to start from scratch. And I'm one of the few people he would actually trust to talk to about that. And um, because I've seen lots of scenarios now, I could give him examples of basically playbooks that he could move to. And I think we found something perfect in about 30 minutes. We found the right next stage. But that that's definitely a case of, you know, increased awareness of being unhappy with what you've got. So I do think people have unfortunately followed followed people who have different values or they've followed business models or systems that may not even work and they need a reset. So being open-minded to new information would be a great start and also understanding that no matter what happened in the past up until this minute, that's, that does not have to be carried forward and you can have a completely different outcome if you're prepared to face some discomfort, take responsibility and to make the changes that need to happen. Yeah, you're speaking my language. I'm all about, you know, when you hire a business coach, at the end of the day, your coach can guide you, but you still have to, you're still 100% responsible of an outcome, you know, and I see a lot of people, you know, they blame social media because they're not making money because Facebook isn't putting their stuff, you know, in the front of, do you know what I mean, audiences, or they're blaming this. But at the end of the day, people have choices to make, they've got actions to take, they've got decisions to make. But you as a successful business owner, you know, I, I do think it comes down to so much of, of your own responsibility and willingness to just, you know, learn, take action and keep going. Well, I tell those people to buy a mirror. <laughs> that's really the person looking back at them in the mirror is the only person responsible for what's happening in their life. Mm-hmm. 100% the minute they wake up. So no, well, James, listen, super powerful episode and it is always fun to connect. I'm counting down the weeks until we're actually face-to-face in the Maldives hanging out, which will be super fun. For the listeners that want to connect with you, uh, learn more about you, where can they find you, James? You know, based on this topic, I'd check out episode 627 at superfastbusiness.com and the whole thing is there transcribed and everything. 
All right, fantastic. I'll make sure that we also have that in the show notes. Um, and if they're interested in the you know services that you offer, your membership, for example, where can they find that? Is that also at superfastbusiness.com? Superfastbusiness.com. All right, fantastic. And just before we sign off, as a reminder, my team and I will be putting together the whole transcription for this episode at angelahenderson.com.au. And of course, I cover all sorts of related business and life topics in my amazing Facebook community of over 5,500 members. So I look forward to having you join me over there. For the rest of you, excuse me, have a fabulous day. And I look forward to you to listening uh, next week on another amazing episode of Business and Life Conversations podcast. Have an awesome day. And thanks again, James. Thanks, Angela. Thanks for listening to the Business and Life Conversations podcast with Angela Henderson, www.angelahenderson.com.au.